think we'll go ahead and get started. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Holly Keat. I'm a prof associate professor of pulmonary and critical care in San Antonio, Texas. And I have the privilege of being with two great speakers this afternoon uh, for a discussion on COVID-19 clinical trials, current outcomes and future expectations. And in a second, I'll get to introducing our, our wonderful panelists. But first, I just wanna get a few housekeeping items out of the way. So first of all, use the Q&A section at the bottom of your screen to submit any questions throughout the talk. And I'll keep an eye on those questions and we'll plan to address those at the end of the talk. So again, just use the Q&A section at the bottom of your screen. And then just so that you're all aware, this will be recorded and a uh, video will be available next week. After this is over, you'll get an email with information about how to access that. And so now let's get to the good stuff. So this afternoon, we're gonna have two speakers. First up will be Dr. Ryan Maves, who's joining us from San Diego, California, and will be speaking about antiviral and immunomodulatory therapies for COVID-19. Dr. Maves is a faculty physician on the Critical Care Service and the Director of the Infectious Disease Fellowship at the Naval Medical Center of San Diego. He's also an Associate Professor of Medicine at the Uniform Services University in Bethesda, Maryland. He earned his medical degree at the University of Washington and completed his training in internal medicine, infectious disease, and critical care at the Naval Medical Center, San Diego. He previously served as a flight surgeon on board the USS George Washington, head of bacteriology department at the US Naval Medical Research Unit number six in Peru, and is director of medical services at the NATO Rule 3 Combat Hospital in Kandahar, Afghanistan. Dr. Maves is the vice chair of the Disaster and Global Health Network in CHEST and serves on the Fundamental Disaster Management Committee in SCCM. And in his abundant spare time, I'm sure, he likes to nurture his hobbies which he mentioned to me are endless Zoom meetings and keeping up with reading the internet. And he's pretty sure he'll be close to finishing all of it by the end of May. So we'll have uh, Dr. Maves join us first, but first I just wanna tell you about our second speaker who is Dr. Antonio Ansueto. Dr. Ansueto is actually joining us from just across town from me at the South Texas Veterans Administration Hospital in San Antonio. And over there, he is the chief of the pulmonary section and the medical director of the respiratory therapy department, as well as the pulmonary function lab. He's a professor of medicine at the UT Health San Antonio and received his medical degree from the Universidad de San Carlos in Guatemala in Guatemala City and completed his training in internal medicine, pulmonary and critical care at the UT Health San Antonio. Dr. Ansueto currently serves on the editorial board of the American College of Chest Physicians Journal, the COPD Journal and the Respiratory Research Journal. He's a fellow of the European Respiratory and American Thoracic Societies and has extensive research experience, including publishing more than 250 manuscripts. He was instrumental in the development of the Berlin ARDS definition, as well as the gold guidelines. And in his abundance spare time, he's an avid exerciser and has confirmed for me that even in the time of COVID, he's maintained his early morning body pump classes via YouTube. So I would like to welcome both of our speakers. And first we'll kick off with Dr. Maves, who will be speaking uh, about or antivirals and immunomodulatory. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for the, the opportunity to speak to you. I'm Ryan Maves. I'm an infectious disease and critical care physician in San Diego. Now, our focus today is going to be largely on the clinical trial landscape and what data we have to guide therapy. If I could get the next slide, please. Uh, just for quick disclaimers, I have no relevant financial conflicts of interest. I am an investigator on the NIAID adaptive COVID-19 trial. Uh, that we'll briefly discuss today. Uh, the views expressed in this presentation are mine and do not necessarily reflect the official policy position of the Department of the Navy, Department of Defense of the US government, and we will discuss some off-label and investigational agents. Next, please. All right, so last night, or yesterday afternoon, I checked this. There are currently 296 interventional trials for COVID-19 that are active, 
or recruiting currently listed in clinicaltrials.gov. So 89 of those are in the, in the States, 13 in Canada, eight in Mexico, 43 in China. And of course, this is just a snapshot of those that have been registered in uh, clinicaltrials.gov. There are other registries as well. Next, please. So right now, of course, you know, this is a new disease and we are still learning how to care for this. And part of the challenge we all have, and I think we've seen this in our own institutions, is that there's an absence of known effective therapies. And this puts those of us at the bedside in a bind. Uh, there have been thus far three major guideline panels uh, in North America and internationally that have posted interim guidance based on preliminary data, surviving sepsis, IDSA, NIH put some out recently. These have recommendations which have a strong encouragement for clinical trial enrollment. Now that is not broadly available to all practicing physicians. Uh, surviving sepsis puts a lot of emphasis on kind of core critical care issues such as low tidal volume ventilation, for example, that my colleague will be discussing after me. So as these rapid release guidelines continue, um, it's useful to take a look at what the clinical trial landscape is and where these guidelines will go in the very near future. Uh, next slide, please. So we're gonna start with antiviral drugs, so direct acting antiviral therapy. So remdesivir has gotten the most attention. Uh, this is a viral RNA polymerase inhibitor. Uh, there are multiple trials in pro in, currently in progress. It is not yet FDA approved, although I think there's a reasonable chance it will get an emergency use authorization fairly soon. I don't have any special insight into that. That's just a, a guess. Uh, it is presently available through some expanded access protocols, through compassionate use programs, and through randomized trials. Next, please. All right, so we are just now starting to get meaningful data on the use of remdesivir. So this first one came out in the New England Journal relatively recently. This was an industry-sponsored observational study of 53 adult patients in North America, Europe, and Japan, most of whom were male, two-thirds of whom were requiring mechanical ventilation. Uh, just in this observational data, they noted that patients who were requiring mechanical ventilation tended to be older. They were more likely to be men with existing comorbidities like hypertension, diabetes mellitus, and the like. Uh, in their observational trial, uh, they noted that there were 13, there was a 13% mortality rate. Um, interestingly, it wasn't dramatic. It was, you know, 18% of those requiring mechanical ventilation. That's still a somewhat higher survival rate than other studies of patients requiring mechanical ventilation have described, though. Next, please. Uh, they categorized these uh, patients by a ordinal scale. And I'm just pointing out these ordinal scales because this is how a lot of the outcomes for uh, respiratory uh, disease trials are going to be organized instead of, you know, pure survival will look at things like requiring invasive mechanical ventilation or ECMO, requiring non-invasive ventilation or high flow, low flow oxygen, ambient air, hospitalized, not, not hospitalized. A lot of these outcomes will be arranged on some manner of ordinal scale. Um, this is a challenging graph to interpret. And part of the reason is this is observational purely observational data. And I think the take home from this initial paper is while interesting, it didn't shed a lot of light on the actual utility of this drug, but it was the first paper of size to come out. And I think it's worth, worth, worth at least looking at. Next, please. All right, so this is the first randomized controlled trial of remdesivir versus placebo. This was conducted at Wuhan in Wuhan, uh, Hubei province in China at the beginning of this pandemic uh, early this year. So this was a trial that was originally meant to be larger than it was. Uh, unfortunately, this trial was stopped early due to the end of the outbreak in Wuhan, which fortunately for Wuhan, um, 
but it also meant that it was, became more difficult to interpret the results of this. So that led, that reduction in size and termination of the study led to a reduction in st statistical power from 80% down to about 58%, uh, which made it much more difficult to meet their pre-specified endpoints. And we'll see what the outcome of that was. Uh, they had 237 patients in a two-to-one allocation. They received 10 days of intravenous remdesivir. On average, in both groups, patients were about 65 years old. Uh, there were more men in the placebo group, interestingly, although it's not clear that that led to any changes in outcomes. They did permit concomitant use of antiretrovirals. This was a time when lopinavir was getting a lot of attention. Most patients, or many patients, were on inhaled interferon therapy, interferon beta, and there was a wide use of corticosteroids as well. Um, the number of ventilated patients was not terribly large in, in either arm. 7% uh, of the patients receiving remdesivir were on mechanical ventilation, 13% of placebo patients. Can I get the next slide? And the main outcomes of note here is that it looked like there was a trend towards increased clinical improvement at day 28 in the remdesivir group, and there appeared to be a shortened time on mechanical ventilation among survivors. But these really didn't meet statistical significance, and uh, because of the underpowering of the study, um, again, for a good reason, due to the end of the, end of the uh, epidemic in, uh, in that part of China, it's hard to know what to make of this, other than general safety, that it didn't appear to have any real harm associated with it when compared with placebo. Next, please. Now, these results just came out. These uh, were released yesterday by, uh, uh, by NIAD, and uh, I think some of you may have seen Dr. Fauci discussing these on the news. It was certainly uh, all over the papers. So this is the NIAID Adaptive uh, COVID-19 Treatment Trial, or ACT, as it's known. So this began as a study of originally 400 patients, but it expanded to over 1,000. Uh, and these were patients who were randomized from Desivir versus placebo. 68 centers, most in the United States, but also a number of participating international centers in Europe, in Japan, in South Korea, Mexico, uh, and Singapore and the UK. So the primary outcome was time to clinical improvement. Now you remember that ordinal scale that I discussed um, where patients would be on one level on mechanical ventilation or ECMO, and then improved from that would be non-invasive ventilation or high flow, then hospitalized but on supplemental oxygen. So the, the definitions of clinical improvement referred to patients who are either hospitalized but not requiring supplemental oxygen or really needing much medical care. These would be folks who, for example, in many of our hospitals are having a difficult time placing in rehabilitation facilities because of persistent uh, COVID PCRs, for example. Uh, these are patients who are not hospitalized but with limitations or activities, uh, excuse me, but they're not in the hospital, but they do have some limitations in their activities and or they require supplemental O2 at home or patients who are not hospitalized or without limitations. So people in any of those three categories were considered as having clinically improved. So this trial completed initial enrollment at midnight on April 20th, so very recently, and we do have some initial results of this that were released yesterday. Next slide, please. What was found by a, a Data Safety Monitoring Board evaluation of the first uh, just shy of 500 patients who've completed the entire study as of this week was that there was a 31% faster time to recovery to being in those three categories of patients who received remdesivir, 11 days versus 15 days, and this was highly statistically significant. There is a lower reported mortality, which was not quite significant in the interim analysis. It was 8% versus 11.6% favoring remdesivir. Um, now, bear in mind, these are preliminary results based on an interim analysis. When the final analysis of this trial is done, those numbers may shift and change. It is unlikely that the faster time recovery will change. It is possible that mortality may change. 
Um, there is a second phase of the study called ACT2. Because of the outcomes with remdesivir, there will be no true placebo. Uh, remdesivir will be in both arms of the trial. And the trial will be remdesivir and a placebo versus remdesivir plus a second agent. Uh, and that will begin shortly, uh, likely within May, although that remains to be determined. Next, please. So there is, I should actually mention, while I'm still talking about remdesivir, there is a second study that has not yet been published, but is released by, preliminary results released by Gilead called the SIMPLE study, um, which is looking at five versus 10 days of remdesivir. And the preliminary report suggests they are equivalent. Uh, if this turns out to be true, and, and Gilead is expanding this study to include a few thousand patients, the original trial was only about 400, uh, that would effectively double the amount of uh, available remdesivir with a shorter course of therapy. So that's certainly very interesting. Uh, so looking at some other antiviral agents that are under investigation. So favipiravir is a widely used, uh, also an RNA polymerase inhibitor, principally used for the treatment of influenza, not available in the United States. Uh, it does have in vitro activity against coronaviruses. Uh, there are two studies, one open label, uh, which is published in Engineering um, by Dr. Kai and colleagues, looking at favipiravir versus lopinavir ritonavir in China. This was 80 patients, both were receiving inhaled interferon beta. This showed largely radiographic improvement and rapid viral clearance. Those were their main outcomes. Another study, which is still in preprint uh, by Dr. Chin and colleagues, was a randomized trial against umifenavir, which is, again, another a viral RNA polymerase inhibitor often used for influenza. They didn't see any difference uh, in survival between those. Neither of these studies are placebo controlled. It's possible that Favi will have some activity. Uh, this has been studied for a wide variety of RNA viruses, including Ebola most recently. So I think there's more to follow on whether Favipiravir will play a role. Next, please. Very early in the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion of lopinavir ritonavir, which is marketed as Kaletra. This is an older antiretroviral. It is widely available, uh, not often used for HIV therapy in, in 2020. I'm a, uh, in my outpatient practice, I have a large HIV panel and I haven't put anyone on Kaletra in probably 10 years or longer. It does have some in vitro activity against coronaviruses, although the inhibitory concentrations are very, very high and probably not something that could be achieved in clinical use, but still there is interest. Uh, there was a, a randomized trial which was published um, by Dr. Cow and colleagues uh, looking at uh, just shy of 200 patients <clears throat> of whom 16% were on mechanical ventilation. They showed a fairly small reduction in time to improvement, uh, high overall mortality and no real difference between the groups. So it doesn't appear that lopinavir ritonavir is gonna have a lot of activity, at least clinically useful activity for us in the treatment of COVID infections. Next, please. Plaquenil. All right, so hydroxychloroquine. So I think that, uh, you know, lay people know about hydroxychloroquine now as a, as a drug that can be used. And I suspect most of us who've taken care of COVID have given hydroxychloroquine to our patients, myself included. Uh, it is an antimalarial drug. It has some anti-inflammatory properties. It is commonly used for the treatment of lupus and other rheumatologic diseases. Uh, it has in vitro activity against a number of viruses, but it has failed in prior studies against dengue, influenza, and HIV. But still widely available, perceived as being relatively safe. Unfortunately, what we have for it is a number of uncontrolled studies that have led to perhaps premature adoption, uh, not to editorialize too much. Uh, there, the first one was uh, uh, done in Marseille in France, which was an uncontrolled trial with and without azithromycin. Very small number of patients, and the main outcome was increased 
virologic clearance with the combination. Uh, there is a 62 patient uh, preprint, one by Dr. Chen and colleagues, of, uh, in patients with pneumonia, but relatively high P to F ratios, not requiring mechanical ventilation. They compared hydroxychloroquine to placebo. They noted, again, radiographic improvement uh, and a one-day reduction in fever. Um, so there is some clinical benefit in people with comparatively minor disease. Whether that would play out going forward is another question in a longer study. Uh, there is a recent retrospective analysis of older VA patients in the United States, which had suggested a risk of harm that is also in preprint. And then the chloro-COVID trial done in Brazil. This was done with chloroquine, not hydroxychloroquine, a very similar drug, but not the same. Uh, also in combination with azithromycin, uh, they detected a trend towards increased mortality in their high-dose chloroquine arm and have since stopped that arm early. So uh, that's in JAMA network open. Uh, and so it seems that the immunomodulatory agents, at least the antimalarials, may have some real limitations for their use. Um, we'll le learn more. There are a number of ongoing larger studies that may sort out if there's a benefit in perhaps lower risk patients. Next, please. IL-6 antagonists, so tocilizumab. And I noticed a, a Q&A question top, pop up about tocilizumab. So, Again, widely used, I suspect the majority of us, or at least many of us, have given this to critically ill patients. So there's an observation that there is a HLH or cytokine release syndrome-like syndrome with elevated IL-6 and ferritin identified in a subset of critically ill patients with COVID-19. So there are a number of these IL-6 inhibitors currently on the market, largely for rheumatoid arthritis or similar diseases, tocilizumab is the most frequently cited one, uh, marketed as Actemra. This is a widely used uh, agent and has been used widely in COVID over the last few months, uh, including making its way into the uh, national guidelines in China. Uh, in terms of the data, it, support thus far in published data is largely anecdotal and in small case series. Um, that doesn't mean it's not true. We're very early in the course of this disease and uh, the speed in which we're getting data is very rapid. There are 27 upcoming or ongoing interventional trials with tocilizumab, and I think we'll know a lot more about this very soon. Cerulimab is a very similar agent, and again has ongoing randomized trials for it. <clears throat> there is a phase two trial, which has been released but not yet published, looking at patients who with what they define as severe COVID, meaning they have they require supplemental oxygen, but are not critically ill, not requiring mechanical ventilation, and in addition, including patients who are in fact critically ill requiring some manner of positive pressure, invasive ventilation or the like. Uh, what this phase two identified was they saw no difference in severe patients. Their ongoing, their upcoming phase three trial is gonna therefore evaluate only critically ill patients. And if I could get the next slide, this actually shows some of their data. This is off of their website and it's a, just a interesting observation on the nature of clinical research right now in uh, the era of COVID that uh, we're getting tables off of uh, drug company websites because the, the push to get data out is, is so very high in this disease. So they looked at three arms, placebo, low dose and high dose. Uh, Kivzara is the, uh, the trade name of this drug. And what they just observed in this phase too is there appeared to be an increased mortality in patients receiving the low dose compared with both high dose and placebo, but a trend towards increased clinical improvement with the high dose of this agent of cerulimab in the critically ill. So that is gonna be moving forward, critically ill patients with high dose, uh, high dose cerulimab. And it could be that tocilizumab will be analogous where there's relatively 
little benefit to patients who are less ill, but the critically ill or a subset of the critically ill may turn out to benefit. We don't know that yet for sure, but, uh, but nonetheless, there is uh, some hope that we'll get good data very soon. Next slide, please. Looking at other immunomodulatory therapies, uh, I don't think we usually think of convalescent plasma as in immunomodulatory, but in, in fact it is. And this is a uh, using immunoglobulin from recovered patients. Uh, there are prior uses. Actually, one of the first and probably the best data is for Argentine hemorrhagic fever, which is not really a disease of interest, but I think that's interesting. Has been tried in various forms against Ebola and against influenza. Right now, we have really just small but very interesting case series, uh, JAMA. Uh, Dr. Shen and colleagues in China reported improvement in five patients who were relatively young and on mechanical ventilation with rapid turnaround. And then a case series, again, of 10 patients, only three of whom uh, on mechanical ventilation by Dr. Duan and colleagues, who again had rapid improvement and uh, virologic clearance as well. All very preliminary. There is a growing number of expanded access programs for patients uh, with this. Uh, you can go to fda.gov and see how to get them. Um, there are also individual uh, emergency INDs that one can obtain for treatment of your patients. And the process is relatively quick. A number of institutions have programs already set up. Um, Mount Sinai and Mayo Clinic are the two most frequently mentioned, but there are a number of others as well. Uh, the American Red Cross in many cities will also have access to some of these programs. There are currently 37 trials listed in clinicaltrials.gov. And again, I think we'll have a lot more clarity about this likely very soon. Next slide, please. Lastly, steroids, and my colleague is gonna speak more about this in greater detail. So I will just briefly point out this uh, paper by Dr. Wu and colleagues in JAMA Internal Medicine. In general, for other viral pneumonias, uh, during H1N1 influenza, for example, series showed the patients exposed to methylprednisolone tended to do worse. Uh, other coronavirus infections like MERS and the original SARS, uh, retrospective data did not support steroid use. But there is some interesting data that COVID may be different. And this was a series from again from China, showing in their retrospective series of uh, 84 patients who were critically ill requiring mechanical ventilation who met definition, Berlin definition of ARDS, that it appeared the methylprednisolone administration was associated with survival. Uh, surviving sepsis campaign, I should mention, does cautiously recommend uh, steroids for ARDS and for patients with vasopressor-resistant shock, replacement dose hydro, uh, standard 200 to 300 milligrams a day of hydrocortisone is advocated as well. Next, please. There are a bunch of other drugs in development or under study. And just to list a few of them, anakinra, an IL-1 inhibitor, baricitinib, which is an oral JAK-1 and JAK-2 antagonist used for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. There are studies looking at thalidomide, uh, ecoluzumab, which is an anti-C5 monoclonal antibody. This is because of some of the microthrombosis that are, is increasingly being described uh, in patients with COVID. Ecoluzumab is used for the treatment of uh, hemolytic uremic syndrome, or atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, rather. And then a monoclonal antibody specifically directed against the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. Uh, Regeneron, the manufacturer of Sirulimab, is working on this, and there are a, a few other companies that are doing the same, and many, many more. So I suspect that this talk is going to be obsolete in a week, and I'll have to revise these slides again. So it's a, obviously a, a frightening time, but also a very exciting time in medicine, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. And I'm gonna turn it over to my colleague uh, and we'll be available for questions. So thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Maves. Uh, welcome everybody. Holly, thank you for the introduction. Next one, please.
So these are my conflict. I have an intellectual because I'm part of the ARDS Berlin definition. I will talk about a little bit about the IDSA CAP guidelines. I'm, on, I'm part of that too. Next one, please. So today, as you are sitting there in front of your computer, one out of three Americans are positive for COVID. So this is something that when this started two months ago, we didn't think would be possible. That has created a tremendous need to identify ways to treat and to take care of our patients. Next, please. So let's talk about other intervention. Next, please. And here, I just want to emphasize, this is a very nice slide. Everything that shows green shows the viral deposition of this coronavirus. They love to see it within the airway. This is 16 hours, 48 hours post uh, infection. That's why there is a lot of airway involvement, a lot of airway inflammation, cough, and that symptom that patients present. Eventually, this can become systemic. Next slide, please. So it has been suggested that the RDS in coronavirus may be different than what we had seen before. So now it's called CARDS, not only ARDS. And there may be different phenotypes of patients. Next one, please. So this is a young individual, next one, that is in his 30s, had nasal congestion, cough, shortness of breath, next one. Uh, basically, he turned out to be COVID positive, and his CAT scan showed these patchy alveolar infiltrates. But the main challenge of him, next one, was hypoxemia. He was severely hypoxic. And so he's been postulating on why is this person so hypoxemic without having that classic uh, infiltrate all over his lungs. And several investigators have postulated that it's a disruption of the pulmonary vasoregulation. There is a direct endothelium injury produced by the, the virus. And at the end of the day, the patient develops severe ventilation perfusion mismatch. Next. Uh, Dr. Gattinoni and his group suggest that this should be called the L type. L because if everything is low, it's low elastase, low VQ mismatch, low ability to recruit the lung. Next one, please. And if you are able to measure the amount of air that is within the lung parenchyma, you can appreciate in this slide. On the left side is similar CAT scan that I show you. And on the right side is the ability by Hoffman units to measure the density, the one that is bluish towards the left is more air, the red is more parenchyma who's compromised. In this group of patients, the parenchyma is not as dense as I show you in the CAT scan as the measures there are really low. Next one, please. So uh, if there are some biopsy reports on some of these patients, and those arrows, what they point out is, especially to that slide number eight, that capillary space looks pretty clear, but the arrows point out the endovascular tr uh, thrombosis, a slide number D is a magnification of some of those vessels that shows clots uh, in the middle. So it goes along with the inflammation and the microtromba that is present in these patients. Next one. So the point is they need oxygen. Next one. And uh, what should we do? So we need to give a supplemental oxygen. Most of the protocols recommend using nasal cannula up to six to eight meter, a liters per minute, sorry. And if that doesn't help, next one, go to closer system like that, non-rebreathing bags to uh, help those patients. But uh, as the next one, 
uh, we have had availability for several years of the high flow nasal oxygen cannula. And one of the arguments against using this device in a patient who is uh, COVID positive is the possibility to increase aerosolization. Next one. So a recent um, investigator has suggested to go ahead and use the high flow oxygen and place a surgical mask on the patient's face to try to contain the aerosolization as much as possible and try to see the individual will be get better with improved um, uh, FIO2s as well as in, improve a little bit of CPAP that these high flow oxygen devices can provide and will allow the patient to not to be intubated if we can uh, help with the hypoxemia. But next one, if the individual has to be intubated, uh, the current recommendations is go ahead and intubate, uh, use a date, analytics, do whatever you need. But you may want to use different your appeal. You may not want to follow the ARDS net, may not be too much recruitability, increasing the PIP may contribute to ventilator induced lung injury, may contribute to produce vasoconstriction and for the compromise the, the hypoxemia that the patient has. So you may want to establish threshold eight to 10 of PIP and pretty much we have to wait. And this is the group that I will argue if you have availability for ECMO, this would be the patients that will probably will benefit most to add this intervention. Next one, please. So in the other hand, next one, if you have a gentleman who comes, you know, uh, a fever, chills, next one, uh, probably looks like a multi-lobar pneumonia, his kidney has crackles, is hypoxemic, and the next one, uh, the uh, CAT scan show these diffuse bilateral alveolar infiltrates that are the chest extra that are confirmed by the CAT scan. Next one, this will be an individual that you will biopsy them, they will show their uh, alveolar spaces are full of yelling membrane, as well as those red points that you see and around that, those are capillaries that they have thrombi. So in this patient, it's not unusual to have in severe hypoxemia and also in the setting of hypercapnia because you can not ventilate or oxygenate them due to their pathology. Next one. So these patients will fall what the Italian groups call H group because they have high elastic, have high right to left shunts, they have high possibility to long recruitability. In their initial assessments from the patients in Milan, it's probably one third of the patients or the cause of the hypoxemia in these patients. Next one. So here, if you look at the same assessment that we saw in the L group, then on your left, you can evaluate the extensive consolidation that exists at the basis. On the right side, those red lines shows you the extent of the consolidation and it's less areas in the blue side that they are fully aerosolized. Next one. So here you can argue this will be patients should be managed based on the Berlin definition or what we know should we manage patients with ARDS. Next one. Uh, we have a, uh, a protocol and a ventilation protocol that was first proposed with the ARDS net almost 20 years ago when the first study was done, and it has been validated on over 30,000 patients in clinical trials, and is today the standard of care. 
in some of the mechanical ventilation studies that I have done with the Spanish group, with Dr. Esteban, that we take pictures and we evaluate from 1998 to all the way to 2018, we have seen a significant reduction in tidal volumes, a significant um, increase uh, assessment. I use this protocol and having the PIP work together with your FiO2. So this has been incorporated in the clinical management, and this will be the patients who further will benefit to that. Next one, please. Now, in this group, one of the areas that is lacking has been what should do with the oxygenation. And actually, the protocol says, well, you know, you should keep your patients around 88 to 92 percent. You know, that should be okay. But I want to mention this paper because I think this is very important. Because what these investigators did, they studied that 88 to 92%, they call it conservative oxygen therapy, versus a liberal oxygen therapy. That is the 96%. And these patients were studied for up to seven days. The next slide, you can appreciate that the patients in the liberal group, the survival is higher. But probably what is not important is if you look, there is in the appendix, there is a table of periods that patients have with lower saturations below the 88%, that was significantly higher in the, conser in the conservative group. So I think my clinical practice will change based on this study and now try to aim for up to SATs of 95%. You know, 60% or 50% doesn't make a difference in the FIO2, but at the end of the day, they may protect the patients to have more periods of uh, hypoxemia and this may improve or contribute to improvement in survival. So next one, uh, if you remember the, the protocol with the uh, Berlin definition, some patients who are severe, we talk about PIP. Now we know that higher PIP is not better. Next one, please. Uh, we can use other therapies, uh, and this uh, prompt ventilation is, will be an alternative in these patients. The slide on the left, is um, a paper in one patient that was published in the Blue Journal almost 14 years ago that demonstrate how prompt ventilation works. And if you can appreciate the benefit is once the mediastinum in the prompt patient is against the sternum, freeze the basis of those lungs will allow more ventilation. And on the right, you can see, allow also more perfusion and improve the BQ mismatch. Next one, so there have been studies demonstrating very severe patients. In our institution, Dr. Restrepo and the team on the COVID team, as well as University Hospital with Dr. Uh, Dr. Enriquez, they have developed protocols how to train those patients that at the end of the day, this is the group that severe hypoxia will benefit. Next one, please. And there's the data which shows that severe hypoxemia there is an improvement in oxygenation with PROM. Next one. Uh, in the, if you put the next one too, please. So that you can see that in the Berlin definition, we escalate the other therapies that are not available. Nitrotoxin doesn't work. High frequency doesn't work. ECMO, next one, will work. And probably ECMO uh, should be using in early in the disease and probably in the L group. So at the end of the day, the bottom line is identify the hypoxemia, look at the CAT scan, and if that CAT scan does patchy infiltrates, this may fall in this early group of patients, 
that if they need to go to mechanical ventilation, we don't need to follow the Berlin definition. We have to be more conservative with the PIP and the hypoxemia persists. Remember, it's tremendous vascular involvement and ECMO if you have available will be your choice. Next one, please. So next one. So what else can we do? Uh, so Dr. Marvis shows us, uh, us a lot of therapies. Next one, please. I just want to touch basically many different things. Uh, I think this slide really shows how we feel. Like we are walking these very narrow lines. It's our patients are dying. We feel that we are not doing everything that we could. Uh, what other interventions will potentially help them? Next one, please. So there is a different, and it's proposed that there is this viral response and this cause inflammatory response. I wanna to propose to you that this is identical that we have known in septic shock for the last 40 years. You get a dog and you perforate the gut and they have this cytokine response and TNF response is what happened in the initial phase of the stage phase. One, the difference in the dog if you can give an antibody against TNF, you can give an antibody to look right there, you can blunt that inflammatory response. Unfortunately, our patients, when they present, they present in the middle, this is stage two, this pulmonary phase, that inflammation started occurring in their house several days before they came to see us. So inflammation is already there. And how can we pinpoint, next one, please. So we really have to, try to start looking at interventions and understanding that inflammatory phase before we jump into therapies like corticosteroids. Next one. I know I'm aware this uh, recent publication that dexamethasone for days can help with patients with ARDS. The improvement is very significant. There's issues around the time and inclusion, the effect is sustained for 60 days. Next one. But a lot of the protocols that I had seen and I have heard, they're using uh, steroids are a little later, the, person, the, the condition has already been presented. And I just want to remind you, we don't have a study that was done by the ARDS net uh, that basically shows that using that intervention, like uh, patients being already with ARDS, five days, seven days, didn't do anything whatsoever. You will do at 30 days, looked at more patients were extubated, but if you follow those patients further down, a lot of those patients have to be reintubated, develop muscle uh, problems, and they have more complications. Next one. So the point was, can we do some, well, we may produce some harm. Next one. We do have several systematic reviews that have shown that systemic steroids may increase mortality in patients with viral influenza. Next one. And as a matter of fact, the Lancet had a position paper early in the course of this process. I guess, listen, the current information do not support the routine use of corticosteroids in these patients. We need to do clinical trials. We need to understand. And probably the two major concerns were that lessons learned in H1N1 that increased mortality and the prior large coronavirus infection with the MERS that demonstrate the late clearance of the viral RNA from secretions. So these people potentially were infections for longer time period. Next one, please. Uh, anticoagulation, next one, in the, from the Chinese data, we have seen 
that patients who have higher levels of D-dimers, and if they were not given heparin, they were higher mortality. Next one. And our institution and almost every institution has developed a very aggressive anticoagulation algorithm. The prophylaxis are higher doses that we conventionally use, and we have a much lower threshold to fully anticoagulate these patients with any suspicious of, of uh, PE. Reports from France and Spain and Italy, they tell us that these patients are persistent hypoxic, they are able to get CAT scans, but they found large clots inside the lungs. So anticoagulation may be a therapy we should use. Next one, uh, antibiotics. Next one, if it's severe CAP. Next one, so we have recommendation with the CAP guidelines that a lactams, macrolides, uh, if your patient has a risk factor for MRSA or pseudomonas, you should consider broader the antibiotics. Next one, please. So what else? Uh, next one, uh, the, uh, what if the patients have concomitant therapies? Initially, in the course of this pandemic, the ACE inhibitors at the ARBs, uh, they can receive a lot of bad press. They may be uh, favoring the barrel to get worse, maybe enhance the barrel adhesion because actually the, uh, the ACE receptors is some of the very receptors the barrel uses. The data suggests, and most of the guidelines recommend, that if the individual is on those therapies due to the underlying cardiovascular condition, we should continue those therapies. If they are not, we shall not be using. The same token, the next slide, please. If your patient is on statins, non-steroidals, inhaled corticosteroids, they should be continued. There is no contraindication. Uh, maybe for fever, you may want to use uh, acetaminophen instead of non-steroidal, but for X or Y reason, they have to be taken. There is no data to show that they will detriment of they took it before. Uh, not to start it, but to continue. Next one, please. Uh, so what's next? Next one. So there is a huge amount of clinical trials. Uh, you know, Dr. Meyer summarized some of those. I just list there all the different medications and interventions that are being done. But we need to learn from history. We have problems with coagulation, with septic shock, we use cigarettes, it didn't work, they bled. So we have used very aggressive interventions. So we need to do clinical trials before adopting to our patients. Next one, please. There is a significant use of call to the toxic control centers due to people having or intoxication or overdose with cleaners and with all these uh, products to clean. So we may be creating new problems. You know, these people, this, this huge amounts of these cleaners may develop lung problems in the future. Next one, please. So Einstein has told us a lot. And I think what I learned from all this, I reviewed the literature, next one, it goes back to 400 years before Christ. You know, we need to make two habits in treating medicine to help and at least to do no harm. Next one, please. So for health, health workers, infectious control is the most, everything you can do. You need hemodynamic support. We know from the accepting sepsis guidelines, the suppressor, norepinephrine should be the first choice. Ventilator support, which is oxygen, maybe high floor nasal cannula in those patients with cover in the mouth, we may be able to buy them some time as well as to improve ventilation and perfusion. Severe patients, ARDS net protocol, 
rescue strategies. As we saw before, there are very limited data to recommend interventions of medications. And you look, the IDSA guidelines, release the guidelines that today, like half an hour ago, I received the email and everything says, do it in the context of a clinical trial. So nobody's endorsing any of these medications today. Next one. So um, I want to challenge you all that we need to think in the future. We really need to make plans for our patients for post-care preparedness. Uh, Dr. Restrepo here in the VA, we're going to be working with our colleagues at University Hospital to develop a structural problems to assess this individual. We know from the ARDS literature what happened with these individuals recover. You know, they are severely incapacitated. They get PTSDs. They are limited. So we need to understand. We need to support these patients. They want to survive. Maybe 15% the ones goes in mechanical ventilation at a larger percent will survive. We need to have a plan for the future. Next one. In the meantime, let's learn from lessons from 1918. Next one. Those lessons were, you know, social distance. Next one, wear a mask, cover yourself, and protect yourself. Thank you very much. We're happy to answer your question. It's great to be here with you all today. Well, thank you both for those excellent slides. Um, we have some great questions that have been asked and we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. So first up, Dr. Maves. So, you know, given the speed that you mentioned with that data is being put out and that people are trying to collect data and these complicated clinical trials, uh, one, someone in the questions mentioned that the people who are in the remdesivir trials are enrolled sometimes at different points in their disease. Sometimes they're on multiple agents at the same time and it's hard to figure out what is the true acting factor in that? So how can the busy clinician kind of sort through all of that and get the information that they need to apply? Great question and not an easy one to answer, right? And, and the things you've described, the confounding factors about concomitant agents being given in the, the NIAD trial, there are, uh, for example, exclusion criteria for concomitant administration of many of the agents you've, you've mentioned. Um, but sometimes patients have received those prior to trial enrollment. Um, I think probably the best thing we can do, especially in this very rapid time and, and doing clinical research in a time, in a public health emergency, in a crisis with speed, is obviously just comparing to see if you notice any real consistency across both in, in a trial group, seeing if the administration of some of these confounding agents is at least somewhat comparable between the two groups. That can be helpful. Uh, some of the trials I mentioned, a number of the patients had received uh, inhaled interferon beta, for example. And if you can assume that as a baseline between the two groups, it makes it a little easier to tease out the effect of a single agent. The other thing is looking, and I'm going to say remdesivir because that's what I've been thinking about more, uh, mostly of late, is seeing if you see relatively consistent effects across multiple studies. <clears throat> so, for example, the uh, Gilead simple trial, looking at five versus 10 days of therapy, uh, identified a couple interesting things, one of which is that uh, their time to recovery was about 10 to 11 days. Well, you know, the NIAD trial showed the same thing in patients who received uh, a, a comparably ill group uh, in patients who received remdesivir. So it is, it's interesting to note that that has been fairly consistent in, in similar groups, telling me it's probably true. Um, another signal that keeps popping up in the, uh, in the antiviral literature is that sooner is better than later. And I think those of us who look at the remdesivir data, 
notice it looks a lot like Tamiflu, right? Where it's really like the first, first 10 days of symptoms and probably the first five um, are when the benefit is at its maximum for some of these antiviral agents. And that seems to be a fairly consistent signal throughout these admittedly small number of good studies we have. Um, in terms of interpreting the rest of it, I'll tell you, I, I'll level with you, I, I don't know sometimes, right? Um, you know, you'll notice that one of the articles I presented was in, a, uh, in an engineering journal. Uh, two of my slides were off of uh, drug company websites. Uh, and a ton of them are preprints, haven't gone through peer review yet. And I think the best we can do is maintain an open mind and a healthy level of skepticism. I've watched my Plaquenil enthusiasm kind of dwindle uh, over the last few weeks. I think I'm probably not unique in that, although there may, may still be a role for it in the future. Um, one of the questioners asking about Plaquenil for prophylaxis, for example, I think that's very interesting. I think that's a completely different question than, than hydroxychloroquine for treatment. Um, but how we, balance, how we balance that skepticism and open-mindedness in a time when things change so rapidly is extremely difficult. And if I had the answers to that, uh, I would be sure to share it with you immediately. Sorry, with uh, Holly, with the chloroquine, so, so we study in our patients with that. And we notice that LFTs will go from 15 to 40, next day to 60. Uh, and then we need to stop them because their LFTs will go up. That was something that was very consistent, uh, patient after patient. So uh, it turned out to be, I'm also those patients, we're going to give the five days because their LFTs have already have significant uh, three, three or four times. So I, I think that's the point here that uh, the balance of try to help and not to hurt. Uh, can, Dr. Ansuato, can you comment about proning patients who are not mechanically ventilated? Yes, actually, uh, that's a really excellent uh, point. Uh, it has been suggested, especially those patients who are a little hypoxic, uh, watch them, use them in the institution to recommend for them to be pro, at least to them to sleep on their tummy. And this is something we've been have done routinely. And uh, there are multiple reports that are anecdotal reports. And actually, our colleagues in Spain and Italy they told us that this is something they encourage the patient routinely to do, but they are in this great sun and they have not got very sick. So I will strongly recommend you to recommend your patients to learn to sleep on your tummy for a little while, while they, they know they have the disease, but they have, the disease have not got much worse. There are several questions about the cytokine storm controlling the cytokine storm, and then um, management of patients who seem to be in that phase. Can either of you comment on that? Maybe Dr. Maves first. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is a, a good example where we, we are applying an analogy from other diseases. For example, the, the CRS scene in uh, CAR T-cell therapy, and then sort of by an additional analogy, the uh, uh, hemophagocytic uh, lymphohistiocytosis that we'll see sometimes with certain infections, T-cell leukemia, lymphoma, and diseases like that. Um, the short answer is it's an open question. I am, I am somewhat optimistic, at least in the most severe cases, by that cerulimab. Um, very preliminary data um, uh, that Regeneron put out suggesting that there may be some benefit from selective IL-6 blockade. I'll, I'll tell you as an infectious disease doctor, I'm a little paranoid about single pathway inhibition of the inflammatory response in infections, um, just because I think we make IL-6 for a reason. 
And um, and cytokine storm is kind of a term that lacks precision. I think we all know what we mean when we say it. Um, But whether targeting one cytokine is going to fix our problem, I think is unknown. But again, the cerulamab data is interesting and it's provocative. And I think it's another example of having to, you know, for me, maintain an open mind about it. Um, It does make you wonder if simply glucocorticoids would serve much of the same purpose, though. And that would be a separate research question. Uh, Clearly, it is a unique syndrome and needs to be managed uniquely. And I have colleagues who are screening regularly for elevated IL-6 and elevated ferritin and then intervening based on that. Uh, I'm hopeful that that will be a practical strategy. Um, I will say that uh, for a pandemic, uh, tocilizumab is not the most scalable therapy we have in the world. Um, And if it is effective, it'll be interesting to find if there is a more cost-effective way that would have utility in, for example, developing countries where tocilizumab and cerulimab will not be available. So Holly, uh, I think the big issue here, I mentioned about the dog, you perforate the gut, you have the cytokine storm, and you can blunt with an antibody. Uh, I want to remind you, when the HIV this started in their late 1980s, early 1990s, every time we started treatment with the patients, we knew they would get sick. And a patient was not intubated, we started a treatment, they had to be intubated. I would intubate them because they became much sicker. So what happened is once you release medication and you start killing the bugs, they release that cytokine storm and they get sicker. Then people started studying, and we gave steroids together with the therapy, and we blocked that response. And after the patients, they didn't get sick. So the, the point here is that we cannot identify when is that storm starts. And I agree with Ryan 100%. You know, our body is a balance of good and bad cytokines. I mean, a lot of IL-6 may not be, I mean, I mean anything uh, at the end of the day. There is another one of these antibodies, I think it was Sanofi, uh, it's a Sanofi product that I saw in one of these uh, blogs that had a clinical trial that was stopped because they have no efficacy and there were probably some mortality associated with that. So uh, this cytokine storm at the end of the day is a normal response of the body uh, to what's going on, how to manipulate them, we don't understand. Okay, thank you. And Dr. Ansato, can you comment a little bit more about anticoagulation? There are several questions about the utility of D-dimer, as well as what are the ongoing clinical trials looking at how we should manage these patients? Sure. So the, uh, I, will, I have to confess something. I never believed in dimers. Every time we got a patient with suspicious PE, oh, the D-dimer is 222, and the normal value is 150. We say, ah, can we roll our eyes? I say, we don't care. But what we're seeing here is these people may have D-dimers of three, 400, and over nine, they got three or 4,000, or they got 5,000. Some are, there is some labs, they reported more than 5,000. They really go up. We had several patients that, uh, and some of the colleagues had done a Doppler son of their legs, and they found clots on them that were not present there before. So I would say that D-dimer is probably, at this point, the best market that we have and increase, uh, there is something happening in the coagulation cascade, and we should start uh, anticoagulation going on. I know there is a couple of trials of early uh, anticoagulation. I saw some reports of using a TPA, and individuals who have demonstrated very high D-dimers, and they can demonstrate large clots, and the outcomes have been not uh, very good. Uh, I will recommend to look at uh, almost all the institutions, their anticoagulation protocols are very aggressive. It's double the doses for prophylaxis, 
as well as early anticoagulation, full anticoagulation, if there is any problem. I'm an old person. I like old-fashioned way. I like heparin. I like to know what I'm dealing with, and I have to be sure I'm getting the right doses. In somebody who has multiple organ failure, sick, I'm not a big fan of long molecular weight heparin because I'm feeling that I'm hitting the piñata blindfolded, and I don't know what it's hitting the target. So I like heparin, put it there, fully anticoagulate, and see that. Would you extend that to out, the outpatient setting? Sure. So in the outpatient setting, yes. I, I think that, that uh, uh, data with the dogs, uh, I recommended to use it as well as post-discharge. There is been some data that people get, uh, if you have on multiple organ failure, and increased risk to develop a hypercholesterol state of discharge. And this will be a case that I will use uh, a full anticoagulation oral therapies post-discharge. Yeah, I, I I completely agree with uh, with my colleague. I I am a, you know, the duration of post discharge anticoagulation is I think right now arbitrary. Uh, our group's been saying three months seems as reasonable as anything if you're using kind of a provoked clot model. Um, I mean, just anecdotally, our one of our first uh, patients in in my hospital was a relatively young man came in hypoxemic with pneumonia, didn't require intubation, discharged, nicely recovered after a few days, and then returns very quickly with a pulmonary infarct. Um, and again, on anticoagulation and doing well, but the, the syndrome is very real. And, and identifying who, who to do that in. The, the TPA stuff makes me a little jittery, to be honest with you. The, some of the, the dosing being used in trials you know, makes you worry about uh, you know, increased risk of intracranial bleed in some of our older patients who are at the greatest risk for having that with TPA and are at the greatest risk for severe COVID outcomes. So it wouldn't surprise me if, if TPA is found to be effective, if it's effective in a fairly narrow band of individuals. Um, but some of the, you know, kind of informal looks at people's tags would suggest a delayed fibrinolysis. And that is, you know, something you could potentially intervene upon. Um, but I also completely agree with Dr. Ensuedo that uh, I know how to use, I know how to use heparin uh, pretty comfortably and I'm very comfortable fully anticoagulating people based on flimsy grounds maybe. But uh, empiric TPA makes me a little less enthusiastic. And I know one of the big questions is for how long after discharge. I would say with the reason, or now we're talking about you may be shedding the viral for up to a month. So I'd probably give it a three months empirically. Yeah, or yeah. same, same. Yeah. Well, with that, I think we've, we've reached four o'clock, but I just want to thank both of you for your words and for sharing with us today. And I want to thank all the attendees for your thoughtful questions. And again, this will be posted uh, to the Chess COVID website, and it will be emailed to you tomorrow. So thank you all, and have a good afternoon. Thank you. See you all later. Thank you all very much for the opportunity. Thank you, Hugh.